0: This recording is a service of the Allen County Public Library's audio reading service. It is specifically designed for and directed to people who have visual, physical, learning, or language challenges to reading traditional printed materials. Welcome to the Atlantic the historic magazine that offers a unique editorial view on the arts, politics, and current events. Catch up on the important news happening in the world around you. The Atlantic, found only here on your audio reading service. Welcome. This is The Atlantic, and I'm your reader, Susan, with the audio reading service at the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Today, I am going to continue with an article that we started last week from the December 2023 issue of The Atlantic, entitled, A Traitor to the Traitors. The Confederate General James Longstreet Became a Champion of Reconstruction. Why? By Eric Foner. Many black men, both those recently liberated and those already free before the war, were elected to public office after Congress in 1867 ordered the creation of a new government in most of the former Confederate states. New Orleans, and by extension Louisiana, seemed to be a place where Reconstruction could succeed. But the newly created Republican Party was beset by factionalism as various groups jockeyed for political influence. The city was also home to a belligerent population of former Confederates, willing to resort to violence to restore their dominion over black residents. Very quickly, Longstreet plunged into Louisiana politics, having applied for a pardon from President Andrew Johnson, Abraham Lincoln's successor. This would enable him to hold public office and retain his property, except for slaves. Johnson refused, but in 1868, as provided in the Fourteenth Amendment, Longstreet received amnesty from the Republican Congress. Lee, who had appealed to Grant personally for immunity from charges of treason, but declined to condemn the violence of the Ku Klux Klan, chastised Longstreet for recognizing the legitimacy of Congress's Reconstruction policy. But Longstreet, as Varin relates, was adamant that he was anything but a traitor to the South. The first requirement of reconciliation, he wrote, was to accept frankly that the political questions of the war had been settled and should be buried upon the fields that marked their end. There was no avoiding black suffrage and the participation of black men in Southern government. In 1868, Governor Henry Clay Warmoth, a former Union Army officer, created the biracial Metropolitan Police Force, where Longstreet went on to play a leading role. The sight of armed black men patrolling the streets of New Orleans outraged much of the local white population. Longstreet was also appointed adjutant general of the state militia, which was racially segregated but had black and white officers. Over the course of eight years, Longstreet was active on a remarkable number of fronts in Reconstruction, New Orleans. Grant appointed him to the lucrative position of customs surveyor, He sat on the New Orleans school board, which began operating the city's public education system on a racially integrated basis. Meanwhile, the legislature enacted a pioneering civil rights law, barring racial discrimination by transport companies and in some public accommodations. Louisiana Republicans split over this measure with many white leaders, including Governor Warmoth, who vetoed it, opposing it as too radical, while black officials embraced it. Realizing that black voters constituted, to use a modern term, the Republican Party's base, Longstreet aligned himself with the state's activist black leaders, including PBS Pinchback, who served briefly as the country's first black governor after Warmoth was impeached. Uniquely among prominent ex-Confederates, Longstreet frequently spoke out in favor of black voting rights, further eroding his reputation among white Democrats. Being condemned as a Judas only bolstered his support for Reconstruction. Violence was endemic in Reconstruction Louisiana, and Longstreet played a major role in trying to suppress it. Terrorist groups such as the White League and the Knights of the White Camellia flourished. In 1874, after a series of disputed elections in Louisiana, the White League launched an armed assault on the state's Reconstruction government. In charge of defending the city, Longstreet took part in the fighting. But the militia and police were overwhelmed and only the intervention of federal soldiers restored order. The event exposed a reality that recent scholars such as Gregory Downs have strongly emphasized. The presence of Union troops was essential to Reconstruction's survival. In 1891, anti-Reconstruction Democrats erected a stone obelisk, paying tribute to what they called the Battle of Liberty Place. The accompanying text, added in 1932, celebrated the insurrection as an attempt to restore white supremacy. The memorial was removed in 2017, two years after then-Mayor Mitch Landrieu had approved a city council resolution to do so. By 1875, the persistent violence had convinced Longstreet that Reconstruction should proceed more slowly and try not to exasperate the Southern people, by whom he met white people. Meanwhile, in response to what Varon calls a giant misinformation campaign by Southern newspapers and Democratic politicians that depicted the South as mired in government corruption— Northern support was on the wane, an ominous sign for the future of Reconstruction. Longstreet essentially abandoned participation in Louisiana politics and moved his family to Georgia, where he soon became a leader of that state's Republican Party. With Reconstruction ending, Southern Republicans searched for ways to stabilize their party and maintain a presence in Southern government. In Georgia, Longstreet pursued a strategy different from the course he had embraced in New Orleans. Instead of cultivating alliances with black leaders, he now worked more closely with white Republicans, many of them scallywags, who urged northern Republicans to help southernize the party by boosting the power of its white members and limiting that of black politicians. The colored man, Longstreet wrote to Thomas B. O'Chiltree, a politician from Texas, had been put in the hands of strangers who have not understood him or his characteristics. By strangers, he was alluding to carpetbaggers, another of those tainted terms, northerners who took part in Reconstruction in the South and were derided by Democrats as merely seeking the spoils of office. Barone caused this letter a blatantly racist piece of paternalist pandering. Despite Longstreet's efforts to reduce the political power of black Republicans, white Democrats accused him of trying to Africanize the South. He remained popular, however, with black Americans after Reconstruction ended, even winning praise from Frederick Douglass for his continued endorsement of black suffrage and his condemnation of lynching. Longstreet also spent much of his time setting the record straight, as he saw it, regarding his wartime accomplishments. In 1896, he published a 690 page memoir, roundly denounced by adherents of the Lost Cause. Brown offers a mixed verdict on Longstreet's career. He could be arrogant and opportunistic, eager to bolster his own reputation. He benefited personally from the numerous positions to which he was appointed in particular the patronage post he enjoyed after the end of reconstruction including ambassador to the ottoman empire and federal marshal for northern georgia but he also demonstrated remarkable courage refusing to abandon the republican party as many scallywags eventually did or to change his mind about black citizens political and civil rights Longstreet seems to have thought of himself, own writes, as a herald of reunion, and yet she notes his life exemplified the elusiveness of various kinds of post-war reconciliation between white Northerners and white Southerners, between white and black Americans, between upholders of the lost cause and advocates of a new South. His willingness to work closely with black Americans, speak out in favor of their rights, and even lead them into battle in the streets of New Orleans, overshadowed his military contributions to the Confederacy in the eyes of most white Southerners. As a letter in a Georgian newspaper declared when it became a question of the Negro or white man, Longstreet chose the former and could never be forgiven. No statues of Longstreet graced the Southern landscape. Varone closes with a brief look at memorialization, focusing on the efforts of Longstreet's second wife in the 1930s and 40s to raise money to build a statue at Gettysburg. A formidable woman, 42 years is junior, Helen Longstreet at age 80, worked as a riveter in a factory building bombers during World War II. The service of black soldiers inspired her to defend black voting rights, a stance much praised in the African-American press. She died in 1962 at the age of 99. One wonders what she would have thought of the descendants of Confederate veterans who finally installed her husband on horseback at Gettysburg, yet felt obliged as late as 1998 to dissociate themselves from his efforts to secure the equal rights of all Americans. Longstreet believed that peaceful and just reunion would be possible only when the white South moved beyond the myth of the lost cause. The end of his erasure from historical memory highlights what a long and complicated evolution that has proved to be. Perhaps his restoration is also a sign that the time has come to shift attention from taking down old monuments to erecting new ones, including some to the black and white leaders of Reconstruction, who braved white supremacist violence in an effort to bring into being the new birth of freedom that Abraham Lincoln envisioned at Gettysburg. Eric Foner, the DeWitt Clinton Professor Emeritus of History at Columbia University, is the author most recently of The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. The December issue of The Atlantic is centered on Reconstruction. Here is another article, Kennedy and the Lost Cause. In his 1956 book, Profiles in Courage, the future president promoted the Southern mythology of Reconstruction. One Massachusetts grandmother wasn't having it, by Jordan Virtue. John F. Kennedy took George Plimpton by surprise after a dinner party one evening when he pulled his friend aside for a word in the Oval Office. The president had Reconstruction on his mind, really though he wanted to discuss Plimpton's grandmother. Plimpton was lanky and lordly, famous for his patrician accent and his forays into professional sports. The Paris Review founder did everything and knew everyone. He might edit literary criticism one day and try his hand at football or boxing the next. Plimpton had known Jackie Kennedy for years, and he had been friends with Robert F. Kennedy since their Harvard days. He also had another and very different Kennedy connection. Plimpton's great-grandfather, Adelbert Ames, a New Englander, had been a Civil War general and Mississippi governor during Reconstruction. He was an ardent supporter of black suffrage. Kennedy had soiled Ames' reputation in his best-selling 1956 book, Profiles in Courage, which had won the Pulitzer Prize for Biography the following year. The book ushered the junior senator from Massachusetts onto the national stage, effectively launching his bid for the presidency. Kennedy's book presented a pantheon of past U.S. senators as models of courageous compromise and political pragmatism. One such man, Kennedy claimed, was Ames's racist Democratic rival, Lucius Quintus Cincinnatus Lamar II. A slaveholder, drafter of the Mississippi Mississippi Ordinance of Secession, and Confederate colonel, Lamar later became the first ex-Confederate appointed to the Supreme Court after the Civil War. Lamar and Ames were the preeminent politicians of Mississippi Reconstruction. They hated each other. At one point, Lamar threatened to lynch Ames. Profiles in Courage had relied heavily on the work of influential Dunning School historians, disciples of the Columbia University professor William A. Dunning, who scorned black suffrage and promoted the mythology of the lost cause. Kennedy may have been genuinely misled by these historians, but he also aspired to higher office and needed to appeal to white Southern voters. His book denounced Reconstruction, casting Ames as a corrupt, carpet-bagging villain and Lamar as a heroic Southern statesman. Ames's daughter Blanche, Plimpton's grandmother, was incensed. She sent meticulously researched letters to Kennedy, demanding that he correct his book. Some of the letters had footnotes. Some had appendixes. Blanche would not let up, chasing Kennedy from the Senate to the presidency. In Plimpton's telling... As Kennedy took his guest on an informal tour of the White House that evening, he motioned to Plimpton for a word. George, he said, as Plimpton would recall, I'd like to talk to you about your grandmother. Kennedy begged him to persuade Blanche Ames to stop writing, complaining that her correspondence was cutting into the work of government. Plimpton promised to try, but he knew it would be of no use. My grandmother was a Massachusetts woman, he later explained, and when Kennedy refused to amend profiles, Blanche did what any sensible Massachusetts woman would do. She sat down and wrote her own book. Blanche Ames was born in Massachusetts in 1878, the year after Reconstruction ended in a political deal that awarded Rutherford B. Hayes, a Republican, the disputed presidential election in exchange for withdrawing federal troops from the South. Blanche had the Civil War in her blood. Benjamin F. Butler, a Union general, was her maternal grandfather. He had commanded Fort Monroe in Virginia— and had designated fugitive slaves as contraband of war, using a legal loophole that allowed refugees to seek protection behind Union lines. He later became governor of Massachusetts. Adelbert Ames, her father, won the Medal of Honor at First Bull Run and fought at Antietam and Gettysburg. After serving as the military governor of Mississippi, Ames became the state senator and then its civilian governor. He was a champion of racial rights, embracing a personal mission with a large M to support black citizens. Blanche, too, was a principled fighter, willing to risk her social privilege for the causes that she championed. Adalbert encouraged his daughters to attend college. Blanche went to Smith, where she became class president. At commencement, she delivered a forceful address promoting women's suffrage, with President William McKinley in the audience. Blanche helped spearhead the Massachusetts women's suffrage movement, working as a political cartoonist for Women's Journal. She founded the Massachusetts Birth Control League. Once, Blanche sauntered onto Boston's Commonwealth Avenue, carrying a hand-carved wooden penis to demonstrate proper condom use. She was arrested, but police released her after realizing she was the daughter of one governor and the granddaughter of another. If she was a man, one historian had observed, there would be five books about her already. Blanche Ames Ames acquired her distinctive, double-barreled name upon marrying the prominent Harvard botanist Oakes Ames, who came from an unrelated dynastic stand of Ameses. A talented painter, Blanche illustrated some of Oak's books about orchids. The Ames Mansion at Borderland, their 1,200-acre estate outside Boston, was built entirely of stone to ensure that the library, the filming location for the 2019 movie Knives Out, would be fireproof. Adalbert Ames and Benjamin Butler's Civil War-era swords can still be seen in the foyer. George Plimpton once used one to cut a cake at an anniversary party. Profiles and Courage roused Blanche from her borderland retirement. Eight decades had elapsed since the end of Reconstruction. The modern civil rights movement was gaining momentum with its promise of a second Reconstruction. Kennedy was not only taking the wrong side, but he was doing so by maligning Blanche's father. No no state suffered more from carpetbag rule than Mississippi. Adalbert Ames, first senator and then government, admitted that only his election to the Senate prompted him to take up his residence in Mississippi. He was chosen governor by a majority composed of freed slaves and radical Republicans, sustained and nourished by federal bayonets. Taxes increased to a level 14 times as high as normal in order to to support the extravagances of the Reconstruction government. Lamar, meanwhile, was cast as a statesman for whom no partisan personal or sectional considerations could outweigh his devotion to the national interest and to the truth, a selfless patriot who had helped reconcile the nation. The truth of the matter was very different. Reconstruction-era Mississippi under Ames' leadership arguably held more political promise for newly enfranchised black people than any other southern state. Before the Civil War, Mississippi had contained some of the richest counties in the nation, but most Mississippians, some 55 percent, were enslaved. After the war, Mississippi was the poorest state in the Union. But the new state constitution worked to overturn the black codes, laws designed to limit the rights of newly freed African Americans. In Mississippi's Hiram Revels and Blanche K. Bruce became the country's first black senators. Ames himself shared his gubernatorial ticket with three black candidates. Democrats swept the 1874 national midterm elections in what the historian Eric Foner has called a repudiation of Reconstruction. Mississippi Democrats saw an opportunity by seizing control of the legislature in upcoming state elections, they could pass measures that would essentially end black suffrage. The year 1875 became a struggle between Ames, the elected government, Governor, and Lamar, who was then in Congress. Ames's administration had the support of black voters. Lamar, meanwhile, embraced the so called Mississippi Plan, which aimed to disrupt a legitimate election by force if necessary. Lamar insisted that the Democrats had to win control of the state legislature to ensure the supremacy of the unconquered and unconquerable Saxon race. On election day, paramilitary terrorists called white liners obstructed polling places, destroyed ballot boxes, and threatened to kill black citizens who voted, as the journalist Nicholas Lehman has written in Redemption, the last battle of the Civil War. Counties that were once overwhelmingly Republican saw the Republican vote drop to single digits. A revolution has taken place, Ames wrote to his wife, prophesying a bleak future for Mississippi. A race are disenfranchised. They are to be returned to an era of second slavery. Democrats, elected by terrorism and led by Lamar, now threatened Ames with impeachment. They accused him of financial impropriety, including the high taxes that profiles decried, despite his administration's relative frugality. To avoid impeachment, Ames resigned and fled the state a U.S. Senate committee investigated the Mississippi elections and produced a 2,000-page document known as the Boutwell Report. It concluded that Ames was blameless and that his resignation had been forced by measures unauthorized by law. No matter, Ames' reputation lay in tatters. The following year, during the presidential deadlock, Lamar helped broker the Compromise of 1877, which gave Hayes the presidency over Samuel Tilden in exchange for the return of home rule, rule by white supremacist Democrats to the South, effectively destroying National Reconstruction. Profiles in Courage evades easy categorization. It is a historical work written by a political team, heavily assisted by historians, and published for political gain. The book features eight senators strategically distributed across time, space, and party. Five of the profiles focus on questions of slavery, the Civil War, or Reconstruction, and none of the featured senators took a progressive approach to black rights. Three, including Lamar, were slaveholders— Questions about authorship arose early. Kennedy's speechwriter, Theodore Sorensen, was rumored to be the true author. He did, in fact, write most of the book. Archival drafts revealed that the Georgetown University history professor, Jules Davids, helped overhaul the Mississippi chapter. The book's historical vision, though, came from Kennedy. Historians in recent years have acknowledged that the real problem with profiles is not authorship but substance. As a critic, Blanche Ames got there first. Her personal copy of the book, a first edition, overflows with annotations. She drew arrows and corkscrew question marks around the paragraph about her father, her anger visible on the page. When Kennedy insisted that Lamar had written Mississippi's Ordinance of Secession only after losing hope that the South could obtain justice in the Federal Union, Blanche thundered in the margins. Lamar had sown the seed in 1861. He was sowing it again in 1874. In June 1956, Blanche sent a nine-page letter to Senator Kennedy, introducing herself as his friend Plimpton's grandmother and urging corrections of errata for your own sake, as well as mine. She recognized diplomatically that in a work as ambitious as Profiles in Courage, there are bound to be some viewpoints to arouse controversy. Nevertheless, she argued ambition did not excuse historical inaccuracy. Kennedy replied the next month. He was cordial, admitting that Reconstruction was one of the most difficult se- sections to write, not because of lack of materials, but because of an abundance of emotional pact and strongly partisan readings. It was a politician's apology, suffused with qualifiers. He insisted that he had relied on reputable authorities— But granted that, it is possible, of course, that in doing so a particular individual or incident is slighted, or inadequately or inaccurately described. He added, If such is the case in connection with my mention of your father, I am indeed sorry. He assured Blanche that her message succeeded in stimulating me to further research, but warned that he did not expect profiles to be reprinted, so there would be no correction. Kennedy did, in fact, do further research. According to Plimpton, during the Oval Office conversation after the dinner party, Kennedy asked Plimpton what he knew about his great-grandfather, apparently eager to demonstrate his own knowledge. He reenacted how Ames would inspect his Civil War soldiers and shout, for God's sake, draw up your bowels, causing White House personnel to burst in, worried by the uproar. The president had found this obscure detail in an equally obscure book, The 20th Maine, which was published a year after Profiles. But between 1956 and 1963, Profiles was reprinted more than 30 times. Kennedy did not change his account of Adalbert Ames and L.Q.C. Lamar. Kennedy's intransigence only fueled Blanche's campaign. She forwarded her letters to Harper and Brothers, giving the publisher the first opportunity to rectify where profiles encourage courage fall short of the code of historians. The publisher declined, claiming that too much time had elapsed for readers to be able to understand any correction. Blanche combed through Kennedy's acknowledgments and wrote to the professors who assisted with drafting or editing profiles, hoping that the historians might put pressure on him. They did not. There is no evidence that Davids, architect of the Lamar chapter, ever bothered to reply. Alan Nevins at Columbia backpedaled, claiming that the introduction he had written for Profiles carried no endorsement of all details. I am sure the senator will make correction where correction is proper. Arthur Holcomb at Harvard patronizingly suggested that Blanche had misunderstood Senator Kennedy's meaning. Some of these academic historians may simply not have taken Blanche seriously. She was old, she was a woman, and she lacked scholarly credentials. Blanche contracted a second circle of scholars, seeking a historian free from bias who might serve as an impartial biographer of Adalbert Ames. She steeped herself in the historiography of Reconstruction. Coming to understand how closely profiles followed the neo-Confederate, historians worked Armistead Kate and Edward Mays. Kate copies Mays, and Kennedy copies Kate, she wrote to the eminent Harvard historian Samuel Eliot Morrison. Now, unless corrected, modern and future historians may copy Kennedy. This method of writing history leads around in circles of quotations of half-truths. It is a false method. Morrison suggested a few military scholars as potential Ames biographers, but mainly recommended Negro historians such as John Hope Franklin, Rayford Logan, and Althreus Ambush Taylor. Adalbert Ames' career as governor was, I believe, more important than his military career, Morrison reasoned, and he was the champion of the Negroes. Blanche contacted a host of prominent academics, including C. Van Woodward, whose books had criticized the Dunning School and challenged the myth that Reconstruction governments with black elected officials were simply incompetent or ignorant. The Profiles team had paid no attention to this scholarship. Despite her efforts, no historian would commit to the project, so Blanche resolved to write a biography of Albert Ames herself. Borderland became Blanche's archive and fortress while she spent six years, 1957 to 1963, researching and writing. When her granddaughter, Olivia Hobletzell, visited Borderland, she marveled at the piles of Civil War maps and books in the library. On one trip, Hobletzell recalled her father asked, "'How long is it now?' "'500 pages,' Blanche replied. When Hoblitzell's father asked, "'Isn't that enough?' Blanche looked him straight in the eye and said, "'Well, if Tolstoy could do it, so can I.'" When she finished, she was 86 years old. Blanche's research draws significantly on the work of black historians, who had been publishing trenchant studies of Reconstruction for decades. White historians had largely ignored this work, dismissing it as second-class scholarship. Blanche thought otherwise. Her bibliography cited W.E.B. Du Bois's Black Reconstruction in America, Franklin's The Militant South, John Lynch's The Facts of Reconstruction, Merle Epps' The Negro Too* in American History, and George Washington Williams' History of the Negro Race in America. Kennedy, meanwhile, had not cited a single black author on Mississippi Reconstruction. The stakes, Blanche believed, included not only her father's reputation, but the very meaning of Reconstruction— her final chapter, Integrity and in History, is a scathing condemnation of the traditional Reconstruction historiography Kennedy had parroted. Throughout the book, she linked Alderba Ames's promotion of civil rights in the 1870s with the modern civil rights movement, the second Reconstruction. In this fateful year of 1963, our Congress has a unique opportunity with its overwhelming Democratic majorities. Congress seems to hold the practical power to do away with the disgraceful suppression of Negro suffrage rights. A hundred years has been too long to wait for application of these long standing laws of equity. Blanche Ames' book was published at the worst possible moment. In September, nineteen sixty three, she finished correcting page proofs for Adelbert Ames, eighteen thirty five through nineteen thirty three, General, Senator, Governor. The book was lovingly bound in sandower cloth and stamped in gold. It sold for $12.50, about $120 today, an old-fashioned, costly volume. Kennedy's mass-produced paperback, meanwhile, sold for less than a dollar. On November 22, 1963, as Blanche's book was going to press, Lee Harvey Oswald shot, shot and killed Kennedy in Dallas. With the president's tragic death, Profiles in Courage got a second life, landing back on the New York Times bestseller list. As the Americans evaluated Kennedy's legacy, his prize-winning book seemed a natural place to start. A televised adaptation of Profiles had been in production at NBC before Kennedy's death. At that time, Blanche had urged Kennedy to use television as an opportunity to to bring your views into accord with the trend of modern historical interpretation of the Reconstruction period. After the assassination, the network pressed ahead, framing the series as one of the finest living memorials to President Kennedy. But Blanche may have gotten through to Kennedy's team in the end, at least as far as the television series. When it premiered, a year after Kennedy's death, the planned segment on Lamar had been quietly dropped. It was the only original profile not to be featured on television. But there was still the book. Blanche wrote to Sorensen in early 1964, trying to strike a tone of mutual interest. Must we not find a way of correcting these obvious misstatements inadvertently restated by President Kennedy? Otherwise, they will be perpetuated with greater force than ever. And I do not believe that he would have wished this. Do you? There is no record that Sorensen replied. Blanche lived to see the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Born a year after the end of the first Reconstruction, she was able to witness the start of the second. But when she died at Borderland in 1969, a belittling New York Times headline read, Mrs. Oakes Ames. Botanist widow, illustrator of her husband's works on orchids, dies. Despite Blanche's best effort, her book sold only a few thousand copies. In 2010, a few years before efforts to remove Confederate monuments gained traction across the country, a life size statue of Lamar was erected outside his former home in Oxford, Mississippi. The LQC Lamar House Museum's public outreach efforts generally commemorate Lamar not as a white supremacist or an architect of the Mississippi Plan, but as the embodiment of Kennedy's redemptive arc. Southern secessionist to American statesman, as the museum describes it, Ames is not mentioned at all. Profiles is highlighted throughout the museum. In 1980, George Plimpton donated a copy of Blanche's book to the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library and Museum in Boston. President Kennedy would know, he said, that a Massachusetts woman will eventually have her way. But Blanche Ames has not had her way quite yet. At the library's gift shop, visitors can buy a 50th century edition of Profiles Encouraged, published in 2006 with an introduction by Carolyn Kennedy. The book has never been corrected. Jordan Virtue is a Ph.D. student in history at Stanford University. She is studying the legacy of the Civil War and Reconstruction. Continuing its series of articles on Reconstruction, we have The Revolution Never Ended. The Federal Government Abandoned Reconstruction in 1877, but black people didn't give up on the moment's promise, by Peniel E. Joseph. The Civil War produced two competing narratives, each an attempt to make sense of a conflict that had eradicated the pestilence of slavery. Black Americans who believed in multiracial democracy extolled the emancipationist legacy of the war. These Reconstructionists envisioned a new America, finally capable of safeguarding black dignity and claims of citizenship. Black women and men created new civic, religious, political, educational, and economic institutions. They built thriving towns and districts, churches, and schools. In so doing, they helped reimagine the purpose and promise of American democracy— for a time after the war, black Reconstructionists also shaped the American government. They found allies in the Republican Party where white abolitionists hoped to honor free people's demands and create a progressive country in which all workers earned wages. Republicans in Congress pushed through amendments abolishing slavery, granting citizenship, and giving black men the ballot. Congress also created the Freedmen's Bureau, which offered provisions, clothing, fuel, and medical assistance to the formerly enslaved, and negotiated contracts to protect their newly won rights. With backing from the Union Army, millions of black people in the South received education, performed paid labor, voted in presidential elections, and held some of the highest offices in the country, all for the first time. Black Reconstructionists told the country a new story about itself. They were people who believed in freedom beyond emancipation. Those who longed for the days of anti-Bellum slavery felt differently. Advocates of the lost cause, who believed that the South's defeat did nothing to diminish its moral superiority, sought to redeem their fellow white citizens from the scourge of Negro rule. Redemptionists did more than offer a different story about the nation. They demanded that their point of view be sanctified with blood. They threatened the nation's infrastructure and institutions and backed up their threats with violence. The redemption campaign was astoundingly successful. Intimidation and lynching of black voters and politicians quickly reversed gains in turnout. Reprisals against any white person who supported black civil rights largely silenced dissent. The Second Rebellion hastened the national retreat from Reconstruction. Federal troops effectively withdrew from the Confederate states in 1877. White Southerners soon dominated state legislatures once again and passed Jim Crow laws designed to subjugate black people and destroy their political power. The official Reconstruction timeline usually ends there, in 1877. But this implies that the Reconstructionist vision of American democracy ceased to exist, or went dormant, without the backing of federal troops. Instead, we should consider a long Reconstruction, one that stretches well beyond 1877, and offers a view that transcends false binaries of political failure and success. This view allows us to follow the travails of the black activists and ordinary citizens who kept the struggle for freedom and dignity alive long after the Republican Party and white abolitionists had abandoned it. Black institutions, including the church, the schoolhouse, and the press, kept public vigil over promises made, broken, and in some instances renewed during the long march toward liberation. Their stories show that freedom's flame, once boldly lit, could not be extinguished by the specter of white violence. The concept of a long reconstruction recognizes that a nation can be two things at once. After 1877, freedom and repression journeyed along parallel paths. Black Americans preserved a vision of a truly free nation in an archipelago of communities and institutions. Many of them exist today and continue their work. This, perhaps, is the most important reason to resist the idea that Reconstruction ended when the North withdrew from the South. In a sense, the work of Reconstruction never ended because the goal of a multiracial democracy has never been fully realized. And America has made its greatest gains toward that goal when it has rejected the redemptionist narrative. That the work of Reconstruction continued well after 1877 is illustrated by the life of Ida B. Wells, a woman who witnessed the death of slavery and fought against the beginning of Jim Crow. Wells kept alive the radical ideals of the Reconstructionist and punctured, through her journalism, the virulent mythology peddled by the redemptionist. When Wells was born in Holly Springs, Mississippi on July 16, 1862, her parents, Jim and Lizzie Wells, were enslaved. Later that year, the Union Army took control of the town while staging an attack on Vicksburg. As they did elsewhere across the dying Confederacy, enslaved people in and around Holly Springs, fled plantations for Union lines, and emancipated themselves. But freedom proved contingent. Even when Union General Ulysses S. Grant made his headquarters in the town, black refugees feared reprisals from their former enslavers. Their vulnerability to white violence, even under the watch of Union troops, foreshadowed the coming era. After the war, Jim and Lizzie Wells chose to stay in Holly Springs. Jim joined the local Union League, which supported Republican Party politics and was committed to advancing black male suffrage. In fall 1867, when Ida was five years old, her father cast his first ballot. Ida grew up in a Mississippi full of miraculous changes. She attended the first colored school in Holly Springs, a remarkable opportunity in a state that has been considered the most inhospitable to black education and aspiration in the entire Confederacy. As a young girl, Ida read the newspaper aloud to her father's admiring friends. Just a few years earlier, it would have been illegal in Mississippi to teach her the alphabet. In 1874, when Wells was 12, 69 black men were serving in the Mississippi legislature, and a white government governor, Adalbert Ames, placed in office partly by the votes of the formerly enslaved, promised to commit the state to equality for all. Around that time, Mississippi Secretary of State, Superintendent of Education, and Speaker of the House were all black men. The world around Ida was full of fiercely independent and economically prosperous black citizens. These attainments buoyed her optimism for the rest of her life. But the idol of her childhood was brief. Redemptionist forces in Mississippi struck back against black politicians with naked racist power. In December 1874, a white mob in Vicksburg killed as many as 300 black citizens after forcing the elected black sheriff, Peter Crosby, to resign. By 1876, the number of black men in the state legislature had fallen by more than half. Following the contested election that year, the new president, the Republican Rutherford B. Hayes, ordered the remaining active northern troops in the South to return to their barracks, Without the protection of federal troops and with the symbolic abandonment by the president, black people were on their own, completely vulnerable to voting restrictions, economic reprisals, and racial violence. For Wells, the collapse of Reconstruction came at a moment of profound personal struggles. In 1878, her parents and one of her brothers had died in a yellow fever outbreak, that killed hundreds, leaving her at 16 to care for five siblings, including her disabled sister, Eugenia. After Eugenia died, Wells moved to Memphis at the invitation of an aunt. Wells' escape from Mississippi did not protect her from the indignities of racism. In 1883, after a visit to Holly Springs, Wells purchased a train ticket back to Memphis, riding first class on a segregated train. She moved to the first class car for white ladies after being bothered by another passenger smoking and refused to go back to black first class. Though barely five feet tall, Wells stood her ground until the white conductor physically removed her. She promptly filed suit and initially at least won $700 in damages before her two cases were reversed on appeal by the Tennessee State Supreme Court. The defeat spurred Wells to find other means of fighting Jim Crow. She longed to attend Fisk University and took summer classes there. By the end of the decade, she had become the editor and co-owner of the Memphis Free Speech and Headlight, the newspaper founded by the Beale Street Church pastor Taylor Nightingale. Wells took over editorial duties amid a surge of anti-black violence, which had remained a feature of the South even after the Redemptionists achieved their goal of removing federal troops from the region. The more that black men and women engaged in political self determination, choosing to own homes and businesses to defend their family, the more thunderbolts of violence struck them. The bloodshed of redemption was intended to in touch the lives was intended to touch the lives of all black people in the South. On March 9, 1892, the violence came to Wells' life, when a mob of 75 white men in Memphis kidnapped three black men, Thomas Moss, Calvin McDowell, and Will Stewart. Moss was an owner of the People's Grocery, an upstart black cooperative that competed with the local grocery owned by William Barrett, who was white. The rivalry between the stores had escalated into a larger racial conflict, and Moss, McDowell, and Stewart had been sent to jail after guns were fired at a white mob that had attacked the people's grocery. Wells knew Moss and his wife, Barrett Betty, whom she considered one of her best friends. Moss, McDowell, and Stewart were given no due process or trial. Another mob took the men from jail and shot each to death, refusing Moss's pleas to spare his life for the sake of his daughter and pregnant wife. Their bodies were left in the Chesapeake and Ohio rail yard. The white-owned Memphis Appeal Avalanche documented the horrors as fair justice for the troublesome black men who had dared to fight white men. In the free speech, Wells wrote a series of editorials decrying the killings and the constant threat of violence that black Americans faced in the South and urged Northerners to renew their support for full black citizenship. In one of those uh, editorials, Wells called out the threadbare lie that Negro men rape white women, which was the justification for many lynchings. While Wells was on a trip in the North— A group of men went to the free speech's offices and destroyed the printing press, leaving a note warning that anyone trying to publish the paper again would be punished with death. She chose not to return to Memphis and continued her campaign from New York. Wells' activism was more than a crusade to end lynching. She traveled the country and Great Britain to describe her vision of multiracial democracy. Frederick Douglass admired Wells and characterized her contributions as a service which can neither be weighed nor measured. Wells first met Douglass in the summer of 1892 when he was 74. Douglass had written a letter to her saying he was inspired by her courage. The two developed a close friendship. There has been no word equal to it in Convincing Power, Douglas wrote of Southern Horrors, a pamphlet Wells published in 1892 based on her groundbreaking anti-lynching essay. The pair corresponded and worked together for the rest of Douglas's life. With his death in 1895, a torch was passed. Wells' efforts in a period of racial fatigue among white audiences helped continue the central political struggle of Reconstruction. Wells' work also intersected with that of W.E.B. Du Bois, the scholar, journalist, and civil rights activist who took a forceful stand against lynching. Their relationship was sometimes collegial, sometimes contentious. Wells never found with Du Bois the same rapport she'd had with Douglas, but she supported Du Bois's then radical view of the importance of black liberal arts education, and Du Bois was shaped by Wells' advocacy and critiques. Du Bois's scholarship paved the way for a reconsideration of the era. He challenged the redemptionist narrative of venal corruption and black men who were either in over their heads or merely served white northern puppet masters and southern race traders. Du Bois's work is a starting point for contemporary histories. Eric Foner's Magisterial Reconstruction, America's Unfinished Revolution, 1863 through 1877, pub- published more than half a century after Black Reconstruction, added texture to the story of the period, then largely untold. Foner's work reframed the era as an unfinished experiment in multiracial democracy. In this tradition of expansion, the historian Stephen Hahn's Pulitzer Prize winning A Nation Under Our Feet, published in 2003, widens early historical frameworks by looking beyond Reconstruction's constitutional reforms. Hahn sought out the black men and women who shaped Reconstruction at the state and local levels. More recently, the historian Kadada E. Williams's I Saw Death Coming focuses on the daily lives of black men and women during Reconstruction, witness to the violence of redemption. All of these works expand our conception of what Reconstruction was and challenge the notion that the era came to an abrupt ending in 1877— They portray the era as a contested epic, where parallel movements for Reconstruction and redemption rise, fall, and are recovered. I first learned about Reconstruction from my late mother, Germaine Joseph, a Haitian immigrant turned American citizen whose love of history could be gauged by the crammed bookcases in our home in Queens, New York. My first lesson on Reconstruction came in the form of a story about Haiti's revolution. Mom proudly informed me that Haiti had been the key to unlocking freedom for black Americans. The Haitian Revolution, she explained, led to revolts of the enslaved, frightened so-called masters, and inspired Frederick Douglass. Later, I found my way back to Reconstruction through an interest in the black radical transition, especially post-World War II movements, for racial justice and equality. My mentor, the late historian Mary Manning Marable described the Civil Rights Movement in the Age of Black Power that followed as a second Reconstruction. During this time, with a renewed interest in slavery and its aftermath, scholars rediscovered Du Bois's work. My research and writing of late has revolved around interpreting the past 15 years of American history— from Barack Obama's ascent to the White House in 2008, to the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement in 2013, to Donald Trump's 2016 presidential election, to the events that followed George Floyd's murder in 2020. In my 2022 book, The Third Reconstruction, I argued that we might be living through another era filled with a kind of dizzying possibility and intense backlash that whipsawed the South during Wells's life. Today's Reconstructionists have a vision for multiracial democracy that might astonish even Douglas, Wells, and Du Bois. Black women, queer folk, poor people, disabled people, prisoners, and formerly incarcerated people have adopted the term abolition from Du Bois's idea of abolition democracy and now use it to refer to a broad movement to dismantle interlocking systems of oppression. But today's redemptionists have had their victories as well. Their apocalyptic story of the present, one in which crime and moral decay threaten to destroy America, rationalizes a return to a past America and aims to dismantle the reconstruction amendments that underpin fundamental civil rights. Redemptionists promote a regime of education that reverses the gains historians have made since the revival of Black Reconstruction. The health of American democracy continues to rest upon whether we believe the reconstructionist or redemptionist version of history. Reconstruction as a belief, as an ideal, outlasted the federal government's political commitments by decades. Black people, the country's most improbable architects, continued to make and shape history by preserving this rich legacy and bequeathing it to their children. Their story has remained the heart of the American experiment, both when the country has acknowledged them and most especially when it has not. Pinio E. Joseph is the Barbara Jordan Chair in Ethics and Political Values and a history professor at the University of Texas at Austin. He is the author of The Third Reconstruction, America's Struggle for Racial Justice in the 21st Century. Well, that's all the time we have for today. This has been Susan with The Atlantic. I hope you've enjoyed today's reading from the audio reading service at the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana.